the next mod. Well, if you have your Bibles open there to 2 Samuel chapter 18, beginning verse 1, we're going to read into verse 9. Do me a favor, if you can, go ahead and stand with me out of reverence for the reading of the words of our God. The author writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in such a way that as the words on this page are being read, God himself speaking to us. Beginning verse 1. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zariah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will go out with you. But the men said, You shall not go out, for if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us, but you are worth ten thousand of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. And the king said to them, Whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate, while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai Deal gently for my sake with the young man or the lad, Absalom. And all the people heard when the king and all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the loss there was great on that day. 20,000 men. And the battle spread out over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak or a terebinth tree. And his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. Let's pray together. Oh Lord our God, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to receive your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. You may not know the term, uh, but I'm sure you're familiar with the concept. I, I wonder if you've heard of a Pyrrhic victory. A Pyrrhic victory. It's named for a king named Pyrrhus, who defeated the Romans at one point, but the battle was such that the losses that Pyrrhus and his men incurred, in hindsight, weren't worth the victory they gained. So it has now come to be known as a Pyrrhic victory when the cost of victory is too high. Now, in so many ways, all victories, especially in war, are won at some cost. And to start to think about uh, what's proportionate in those ways is really a macabre task at best. But nonetheless, a Pyrrhic victory is the sort of thing we know of. We say it's just not worth what we had to pay to win in that way. An example of that would be the Battle of Bunker Hill or Chancellorsville in the Civil War. There are examples throughout history of these sorts of victories. And we recognize the thrill of winning is mitigated because there is a sense in which a win might also be a loss. One of, my, uh, one of the 
figures from history I find most intriguing is General Douglas MacArthur. A few years ago, I read uh, the book American Caesar, which is a biography of uh, MacArthur, and it's a wonderful book. And there was a quote in that book from MacArthur that's one of my favorite quotes. Uh, It's become really one of my favorite leadership quotes. It's something I talk to folks about when I get the chance. MacArthur said this, I will not take by sacrifice what I can achieve by strategy. I will not take by sacrifice what I can achieve by strategy. What MacArthur's doing, what he's encapsulating in this, in this sort of quote is, we, we're not going to throw men at situations when we can throw strategy at them. He's avoiding pyrrhic victories at all costs. You see, it's difficult for us to make sense of a victory where nobody seems to win. And it feels like more often and more often and more often in the world we live in, not necessarily in battle always, but just in life in general, it feels like there, the cost of winning gets higher and higher. And so, for all these reasons, the passage that we're looking at today is difficult to get our heads around. Uh, clearly, God is at work to deliver David and his followers. God's at work in the background. In fact, David had prayed in Psalm 37. I've, I've quoted it a lot during this episode because it gives us some insight into what David was thinking during this time. There's a superscription over Psalm 3 that tells us he wrote it during the season. And toward the end of the psalm in verse 7, Psalm 37, he says this, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Clearly, there is a kingdom victory here for the people of God. Uh, Clearly, God is delivering the kingdom back over to King David. And yet, there is great loss for the people of God. And there's great loss and great grief for David personally. Many lives are lost. What do we make of a Bible passage like this? In fact, I've spent a lot of time as we've gone through First and Second Samuel trying to help you see what it seems like the author wanted us to learn and to know. But this is one of those passages that feels intentionally fuzzy. Intentionally fuzzy. And this fuzziness, this wondering about how we should feel. Should we think like David is thinking? Should we think like Joab is thinking? What where God is sort of quiet in revealing how he feels about the situation. So much of that is part of what it means to live in a fallen world, in what I call a Genesis 3 world, a world that's been impacted and, in fact, ruined by sin and brokenness. How should we live? Many of us are asking ourselves this question every day. How should we live when the world around us is broken. How should we live when the wins and losses aren't always so clear? How should we live in a fuzzy world in these situations? Uh, this morning, it's my goal to show you three truths to help you navigate the brokenness of the world, uh, to help you navigate a world where sometimes things are fuzzy, when things aren't as clear as we wish they were. A world which is broken and, and is beaten down by sin. Three truths today to help you navigate the brokenness of the world. Here's the first point, first truth today. Remember this. Remember that God is at work. Remember that God is at work. If we're going to navigate the challenges of a broken world, we have to remember God is at work even when we can't see it. 
In these verses early here, we just read them, David prepares his army for war, and he does so by setting commanders over groups of thousands and groups of hundreds. He's breaking them up into battalions and preparing for war. They're getting organized and ready for battle. And so then he divides them from there into three large armies. One's under the command of Joab, the other is under the command of Abishai, and the other is under the command of Ittai the Hittite, the faithful Gentile, who we met earlier in Genesis, I mean in 2 Samuel chapter 15. And so David then says, I'm going to go as well. I myself will go into battle with you. It seems like this episode has been a bit of a wake-up call for the king who has been sort of laying back. In fact, this whole episode stems from when kings were supposed to go out to war, David stayed back, and that's when the sin with Bathsheba developed. You remember this. So perhaps David's learned a little bit of a lesson, and he says, I'm going to go out and fight with you guys. The problem becomes here that the risk is not worth it. Because, as his leaders tell him, the battle is entirely dependent on whether he lives or dies. This is another way that we can see the advice of Ahithophel being confirmed. And we should all be very thankful for uh, Hushai, who was able to deceive Absalom. Otherwise, if they had come and killed David, it's over and Absalom would have been king permanently. David concedes, I won't go to battle. But he leaves them with a final command. Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. One, one translator says, and commentator says, the lad Absalom. It's a term of endearment. Through all this, David still loves his little boy. Verse 6 says this, So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And David's servants here in these verses soundly defeat the rebellious forces, but, as the Bible says, the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. What a strange circumstance that is. You can see God at work, literally in the landscape, in granting victory to his chosen king. But another strange thing happens. Verse 9, the Bible says that Absalom was on his mule, and as the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak or a terebinth tree, his head caught fast in the oak. The, the best way to make sense of that seems to be that his hair got caught in the tree. That's what most commentators think. It's kind of been historically how people understood that. His head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him went on. Do you see how God is at work even in terrible circumstances? Do you see how God is at work even when we can't see it? Even, even in times when the Bible doesn't say, and God did this, and God did this, you can see God at work. You can see the sort of irony of what God's doing here. He allowed David to get back his kingdom without having to use as much of the sword as you might have expected. Now, none, nonetheless, that doesn't mitigate the fact that this is a horrible loss. When the Bible says 20,000 men were lost, I, I don't know if that means just on Israel's side or on both sides. I would assume it means both sides. And for some of us with the American Civil War still at some level in our consciousness, we recognize 20,000 men, these are countrymen. It's a bloody day for the country, no matter how many are lost and on which side they were. These are all people that will soon return 
to loyalty to David. Do you see how God's at work, though? The forest devoured more than the sword, the way God is working, even when you can't tell. But then also, this same forest that devoured more than the sword snatched up Absalom by his hair. You may not remember this, but earlier in the book, one of the symbols of the pride and glory of Absalom was his hair. The Bible says frequently he would have it cut once a year, and when he would uh, uh, have it cut, they would weigh the hair, which I find to be kind of a funny practice. That's another indication maybe of some of the pride there. And they would weigh the hair, and if the numbers shake out correctly, it was five pounds of hair would come off Absalom's head. So this symbol of his pride and part of what he used to steal the hearts of the people of Israel. He's now caught up in the tree with this hair and he's dangling there at the mercy of David's army. And so God takes this point of pride and in so doing undoes him by it. My friends, I want you to know something. Even in the sordidness and challenge and difficulty of the world we live in, God is at work. God never stops working. And as Christians, we have to believe this or we will go insane. We will lose our minds. We will certainly lose our hope. You see, I encounter Christians frequently who seem to be losing hope. It troubles me to see that. Uh, Friends, if we live in this world as if this world is all that we have, as if the W's and L's column only counts if it happens in this life, then we are actually repudiating the gospel we claim to believe. Because nothing on the surface looks more like a gigantic L in the L column, in the wins and losses column, than the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nobody seems to have been less successful in what they set out to do according to the world's terms than Jesus did. And yet it was through the cross that Jesus ultimately was victorious. And we recognize then that our hope is in the future. Our hope is beyond this life. We can't forget that. We can't miss that. We must remember that. Friends, we need to remember That without believing that God is at work, this world will either eat us alive or drive us insane. Remember, God is at work. Second of all, if if we're going to navigate the world as it is, we must also stay alert to real evil. That's our second point today. Stay alert to real evil. So not only do we remember that God is at work, First of all, second of all, we stay alert to real evil. A man comes along and he sees Absalom in the tree and he reports it to Joab. And um, so when the man sees Absalom in the tree, he refuses to kill him because of David's commands. But Joab, apparently, seems to think that the king is behaving irrationally. It seems to think that the king is behaving irrationally. And so Joab, according to the text of Scripture, verses 10 and following, he decides to take matters into his own hands. The Bible says he took three javelins. He took three javelins and he struck Absalom through the heart with those javelins. And then as he's dying, apparently, or as he's at least incapacitated, uh, Joab's armor bearers come along and they finish the deed. 
And in so doing, this prince of Israel, this great man, the one who presumably one would think would have been king had he not chosen to try to take the kingdom by force, this one who stole the throne was dead. And now the new challenge arises. The battle's won. Absalom is dead. But now the challenge is telling the king. Joab tries to protect Ahimaaz, who's the son of Zadok the priest. He doesn't want him to be the one that takes this news uh, to David, but uh, to keep him from being associated with this deed that's been done. And so he tries to send a Cushite, someone from outside Israel, to share the news with David. But Ahimaaz insists on going and taking news to the king, and he somehow gets there faster than this uh, Cushite. But when he gets there, he doesn't explicitly tell the king the news of Absalom's death. What do we make of this? What do we make of Absalom here? More importantly, I mean, what do we make of Joab and Joab's decision? He doesn't do what the king asked. He has Absalom, he kills Absalom and has him killed. He participates in the killing of him despite the king's desires. Who is right? Is it David who wanted to spare Absalom? Or is it Joab who dealt decisively with Absalom? And maybe you're trying, beginning to see the challenge, right? I wonder if you're starting to see what I mean by some of this being a little bit fuzzy. Because the reality is the author doesn't really clue us in on who was right or exactly what God desired in these circumstances. Now, I think, though, that there's biblical precedence to, to say that we have important things to learn from both Joab and David's responses in this passage. For the sake of this point, let's focus on Joab for a moment. To many of us, understandably, he might seem cold and calculated and maybe even calloused. But what is it that he did right? I think he recognized that we live in a fallen world by taking evil seriously. He took evil and wickedness seriously. And the reality is what Absalom did was evil. It was wicked to behave the way he behaved. Joab had already been used by Absalom before in his rise to power. So he knew the power of his rebellious nature. And so, rather than having a falsely optimistic view, and rather than looking through rose-colored glasses like David did, he didn't have the sort of affection for Absalom that David did, he took matters into his own hands, and he did what a military man does with a traitor. Had him executed. And my friends, I, I want us to know this. I don't encourage you to do exactly what Joab has done, but I do encourage you to learn the lesson that we must be alert to real evil. Evil exists, sin exists, and we have to realize that we must be shrewd at times in navigating this world. In fact, Jesus Christ himself told us that we must be wise or as shrewd as serpents. We must be careful the way we walk in this world. In this world, we're constantly in conversations where we balance we must, we're forced to balance our genuine desires for both mercy and justice. We, we cannot live in a world where there's no grace, and we cannot live in a world where there's no justice. Uh, either way, we are all going to be miserable in the end. The world will turn into a genuine hellscape if we deprive the world of either of these realities. It's part of the problem of the age. Many of us have a tendency, I think, to believe that if we just educate enough, and I'm all for education, believe in education. Or if we just take everyone out of poverty, 
And I'm all for helping those who don't have enough. If we just enlighten people enough, I believe Christianity is the religion of enlightenment. I believe in enlightenment. If we make enough progress, if things move forward enough, then we can eradicate evil from the world. Every time we see someone do something wrong, we think if they only had had this, or if they only had had that, if they only had dealt with their trauma with a therapist, or if they had only had better parents growing up, if they hadn't had to resort to this because of uh, the poverty they were in, or if they'd only had a chance at a good education. Now listen, I... I'm a big fan of helping people deal with their problems and making the world a better place. I, I think we desire that because of the influence of the Bible uh, in our life and society, not despite it. But friends, sin is not an issue of becoming more progressive or, or being more educated or having better economics. Sin is real and powerful, and it does not go away. There's a reason why we are drawn to situations I bet, I bet a bunch of y'all have watched every series and listened to every podcast on the Murdoch trials, right? This family that seems to have it all. They're wealthy, they're educated, they have all the world's goods, and yet there's genuine evil coming out of their lives. Why are we so, why are we so in tune with that sort of thing? It's because it betrays a reality that so many of us choose to ignore that we cannot out-educate, we cannot out-money, we cannot out-progress sin. It's there. The Bible says it's crouching at the door. Part of what it means to live in a fallen, broken world is that we must be ever vigilant and alert to the very real problem of evil. In fact, Jesus did tell us to be wise as serpents, to be shrewd as serpents. But don't forget this. In the very same breath, He also told us to be innocent as doves. Be wise as serpent, serpents and innocent as doves. That leads us to our last point. First of all, we must remember that God is at work. We must stay alert to real evil. And finally, we must embrace gospel grief. Uh, we must embrace gospel grief. David's immediately relieved to hear from Ahimaaz that his followers won the battle, but he's still desperate to know the fate of his son. Is it well with the young man Absalom? He asks when Ahimaaz gives him an inconclusive report. This late-coming Cushite then says to him, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And immediately upon hearing the news, David falls apart. He runs into a private chamber at the gate where he's waiting on the news and he's weeping there he is crying out and all the while in this weeping and mourning you can imagine the bitter voice of the king echoing throughout saying oh my son Absalom my son my son Absalom would I had died instead of you oh Absalom my son my son the king, the warrior, remains a father. All of us look at this passage and we recognize Absalom received justice. He got what he deserved, we might say. But nonetheless, David wished he had received mercy. As Christians, many of us, myself included at times, are more increasingly concerned about the way that there is less and less interest in a biblical sense of justice in the world. 
And in so doing, being concerned about that, sometimes I'm afraid we are hardening our hearts. People get what they deserve, we might want to say. You poke the bear and you get bit, we might want to say. We harden our hearts, we callous our hearts to real people in really awful circumstances, even ones of their own making. We nonetheless must keep soft hearts. In all of this, David still mourned and wept. And this is what I'm calling gospel grief. Maybe this whole passage is pointing to this idea of how I think we can balance these, these things out, perhaps. We recognize these things when we practice gospel grief. We recognize that God is at work, that we believe He's at work, and that we believe in justice and righteousness and consequences, but we can still grieve that things are not as they should be. We can still grieve when someone is executed, even if they committed heinous sins. We can still grieve when someone goes through awful consequences, even if they brought them on themselves. This is part of the mercy which God wants His people to practice. And yet, even as we grieve in these ways, we do not grieve as those who have no hope. We grieve knowing and recognizing and believing that there are no final losses in the Christian life because of the sure victory that Jesus has bought with His blood. There are also, not only are there no final losses, we also recognize when we practice gospel grief that there are also rarely total wins in this life because everything is still tinged with sin. Even in a fallen world when righteousness prevails, there are still people who suffer unintended consequences. It's part of what it means to live in a world that's fallen, a a, a place where indeed it is ruled by God, but nonetheless there is a temporary authority the evil one. As Christians, I think we're called to live lives of gospel grief. We are relentlessly realistic. The world is broken and we will not pretend that it's not. We're consistently brokenhearted. Sin is on the move in the world and it ruins everything it touches and we wish it was not that way. But we are also eternally optimistic. We believe God is at work in the gospel and that all wrongs will be made right. You see, friends, when we live lives of gospel grief, it leads us to have steel spines regarding God's truth and soft hearts toward a world that's under the power of the evil one. It allows us to live knowing that our life cannot be undone by a single loss because God's work in the gospel is greater. And our life is not made right or perfect by a single win in this life because God's work in the gospel is greater. It allows us to navigate the fuzziness of life and the brokenness of life with hope and grace and love and joy. It's still hard though. Is God a God of justice or a God of mercy? Should I lean toward Joab or lean toward David here? At what point, some of you might be asking, sure, whatever, give me something practical, preacher. At what point is turning the other cheek just casting my pearls before swine? So, you know, you're saying, you can quote Jesus, I can quote Jesus too. Give me something to work with. Friends, there's only one place to which I can point. I, I can't perfectly answer your question. I'm going to give you my favorite answer to almost every question, which is pray for wisdom. That's what the Bible tells me to do, too. But where I can point you is the one place in the Bible where God's justice and mercy are perfectly reconciled. I can tell you that in this passage, God is preserving David's kingdom, not just, 
not because he likes David better than Absalom. He's preserving David's kingdom in order to build a kingdom around the person and work of David's son, who happens to also be God's son, our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the gospel of Christ takes all of our losses and by God's miraculous grace, somehow in the end will turn them into wins. That's because our lives now take the shape of the gospel. Jesus on the cross experienced an utter and total defeat. But it was only through becoming sin on our behalf, through letting Satan have his way, and ultimately through being pulverized at the cross by the wrath of God, that Jesus was able to secure a victory that is more triumphant than any of us can imagine. It's overwhelming to the point that it makes all the wins in this life seem like nothing, and it's overwhelming to the point that all the losses in this life are turned into victories through the gospel. Do you see how God answered the prayers of his people? Do you see how God answered David's prayer? Arise, O Lord, strike your enemies. But instead of striking us, who had rebelled against him in sin, God received the striking for us in the cross of his son. Has there ever been a victory with a higher cost? Has there ever been a victory that contained a more gratuitous offering of sacrifice? Has there ever been a victory that was gained by a greater loss than the victory of Jesus Christ at the cross? And yet God took the loss Himself. He took the loss Himself through His Son. And it's there at the cross where, as the hymnist says, sorrow and love flow mingled down. It's there at the cross where justice and mercy meet perfectly it's there at the cross where we stake our claim where we lay down our lives it's there at the cross where we find the perfect reconciliation is God a God of justice yes he is he did not spare his own son is God a God of grace yes he is he did not spare his own son oh friends would you turn to that God today are you willing to trust him today I want to offer an invitation this morning If you've never put your trust and faith in Jesus for the first time, I would love to give you the opportunity today, at this moment, to respond to the Lord in faith. I believe if you'll turn from your sins and repentance and turn to God in faith through Jesus, I believe you will be saved. I believe with all my heart. And you don't have to come down here and talk to me to do it. Right where you are, you can come to the Lord and He will save you. But if you need someone to talk to, if you want someone to counsel with you, you know where I'll be. I'll be right here waiting on you during the song sharing plays in a moment. Second of all, you may be a Christian. You may need some time to do business with the Lord right where you are or down front. Again, if you need someone to talk to, it's what I'm here for. I'd love to have that opportunity. And finally, you may be looking for a church home. What a joy it would be for me today to talk to you about what it means to be a member here at First Baptist Church. After this song, I mean, after this prayer, as the song plays, I want to invite you to do business with the Lord. Let's pray together.